There's a lot of churches that preach Christ, a lot of pulpits that preach Christ, and we are one of them, and this passage is one that is drawing me to that aim this morning and that target, which is to preach Christ. It's one thing, I think, to preach about Christ and to preach about the church and to preach from Scripture that references Christ, and it's another thing sometimes just to preach Christ, and that's what the Lord has laid on my heart to do this morning. I read the beginning of a Sunday evening service sermon that Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached on May the 21st, 1882. He was preaching on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and the title of his sermon was Depths and Heights. He said, I have nothing to do tonight but preach Jesus Christ. This was the old subject of the first Christian ministers. Daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria, he preached Christ unto them. When he sat with the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot, he preached unto him Jesus, and as soon as Paul was converted, straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, and we hope unless the Lord shall come, there will always be found a succession of men who shall determine to preach nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. For after all, this is the subject which men most of all need. They may have cravings after other things, but nothing can satisfy the deep real need of their nature, but Jesus Christ and salvation by his precious blood. Yesterday, I was um, in a community center, and there were two young 20-something-year-olds, and I just sensed I need to give them the gospel. And so I just started talking to them about what they were talking about. They were talking about not going to college and why, and so I just began to talk to them about how I'm not really a above average student. I wasn't made that way. I have to force it and to get a B. And so I just began to sort of disarm them and talk to them. And as I preached Christ to them, one was hearing and the other was really hearing. It's always the other one who's listening on, right? That's open. And he circled around and came up to me in the parking lot and said, you know, my other friend may or may not have been listening, but I've been wanting a connection of late with Christ. I have a friend who has Christ and, you know, and so you never know why you're supposed to preach Christ, but we're all called to preach this Christ, this one who someone said came from the bosom of the father to the bosom of a woman. He became the son of man that we might become the sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and influential. 
influential. In infancy, infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all of the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he was has furnished them for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion of the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, Great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. This Jesus is magnificent. Magnificent in his poverty and magnificent and majestic in his exaltation. Many churches preach Christ, but many churches, I dare say, dumb down Jesus Christ. And they don't preach a compelling Christ because they don't preach the biblical Christ. They preach a your buddy Christ. They preach something else other than what we see revealed to us in scripture. Christ is not compelling to people in the, in the pew, and they think they have him just figured out as a get out of jail free card or as someone who is a sympathetic psychiatrist or sociologist for their life, a counselor, but not a king. We need to preach the Christ of the Bible because people need the accountability of Jesus Christ so that they can come to the conclusion that this Jesus is the one for whom is worthy to give my life to, right? If Jesus isn't high, if Jesus isn't deep, a fair question can be made. Should I really give my entire life to this Christ? And I want to challenge you this morning that you need to ask yourself as you read with me Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, is this Jesus worthy for you to give your life to? Is he worth your life? These verses give Christ credentials to show us that he is worthy of your life. Let me read them. Verse one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, the first credential I want to open to us this morning is that Christ creates or Christ as creator. This is a credential that we don't want to just whimsically skip over. God is creator, and so Christ is creator. If God is Christ, then 
he is the one who is worthy of our lives. If he is, if Christ is not fully God as creator, is he worth giving our lives to? The case is made in verse verses 1 and 2, that God spoke through our fathers and prophets. He spoke in many ways. He spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament. In these last days, since Christ's coming, the Christ event of his arrival, he's spoken to us by his son, literally in huios, in son. Christ is the revelator of God. And the big idea of this passage is making the case, is Christ worthy to be God's revelator as God? Because if he is worthy as God's revelator or the one who is revealing God to us in these last days, then he is also worthy to be our redeemer. He's our revelator and so he is our redeemer. And this is all based on the credentials that are being rolled out by this author early in this opening, this opener of this great book of the Bible. He is creator. Look at verse 1 going into verse 2. God is mentioned in verse 1. And then it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us in son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, I'm tying together the end of verse 2 under one point because if you don't have both of these ideas held together and tied together, you'll miss the whole point all together. First of all, God, who is the antecedent of he in verse 2, God the Father appointed Christ the heir of all things. He is the inheritor. He is the heir of all things. What does that mean? He's appointed heir. It means ultimately that there was a great coronation service in heaven. And I would say this is after Christ died, ascended to the right hand of the father because of this immediate context. There's an early coronation where the father to his son makes an appointment. And the appointment here is you as my son, are king of kings and lord of lords. What a coronation, right? And you are the heir of all things. You are the owner of all things. You are the dominator of all things. You are the sovereign over all things. Everything, everything is yours, my son. We had an agreement in heaven face to face with each other to send you to earth. Though you were rich, you became poor. That you could redeem a people and make people rich in faith, right? He died, he was buried, he rose again, ascends to the right hand of the Father and is coronated as the inheritor of all things. He is the son of Psalm 2. This is all out of the promise in reference to the Davidic line found in Psalm 2. You could turn there. Why do the nations rage The people and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed. That's not a good idea, right? To be a king and set yourself against God's anointed. It's the same language here of Hebrews chapter 1. 
They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king? Verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the interplay between the father and the son. The Lord said to my Lord, right? Sit on my throne. This is the coronation in heaven. This is the appointment of the father to the son. But this is the fulfillment of David's line. First Kings 9, 5 was a promise through David's son, Solomon. God said, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father saying, you shall not lock a man on the throne of Israel. The throne of Israel does not lack a man because Jesus is that fulfillment of, this, of these promises. Of the Old Testament um, royalty, he is the ultimate royal. And then there'll be the ultimate final coronation, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under, under his feet. Jesus is the heir of all things. This harks to the inheritance that Israel shared in the land of Canaan, the promised land, but there's so much more. There is total rule of Christ. And again, remember my supposition early on. If Jesus is not preached, if Christ is not preached as regal, as royal, as sovereign, as coronated, then is he really worth your life? If he's dumbed down in the pulpits, I think he will be set aside and not honored. Jesus alone is qualified to be coronated as king. He's the only one worthy to be appointed as heir of all things, as owner of all things. Colossians 1.15 says he is the firstborn of all creation. Don't be thrown by that word firstborn. Jesus was never not. He's always existed The word beginning in John 1, in the beginning was the word, speaks to eternity. In the beginnings of eternity, before the world began, God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in perfect community together. As the I am, Jesus always has existed. Jacob was the one who received the blessing, though Esau was the one who was born first, but Jacob became the firstborn. He became the inheritor in the Old Testament. This is the portrayal of Christ who always has existed, but post the cross receives the inheritance of all things, this honor. Why does he receive this honor, owning all things? Well, it's because of the end of verse two, through whom he also, he created the world. The agency of creation is Christ. You need to understand that. Christ is creator. Christ is creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all present if you look at Genesis 1. The Spirit is hovering over the waters. The Father is superintending. But I believe the one who spoke the words, let there be light. That agency is Christ. Why do I believe that? Well, if you harmonize Genesis 1-3 with John 1-3, you have all things were made through him. Who? The word through Jesus and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 6. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Everything in both dimensions, both realms, here in physical terra firma and in the heavens as well. 
all the angelic hosts, everything was made by Christ. Revelation 4.11, he's exalted as the lion and lamb. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Christ created everything. People don't want to believe that Christ is creator in our culture. They don't want a conservative belief that God is creator, that God is responsible for this, that God is the one for whom we are accountable to, right? That's why people don't want it. You can be utterly brilliant and completely miss Christ as creator. You can dismiss him in your flesh. Stephen Hawking, who recently died at the age of 76, he was known to be the most brilliant mind since Einstein. He said, our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll. And this is over 100,000 light years across. We know now that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million uh, that can be seen using modern telescopes, each containing some 100,000 million stars. Hawking's, Hawking uh, died an atheist. I looked this up even this morning, this quote. He said, before he died, I regard my brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. That's sad, isn't it? That level of brilliance given by God in common grace and yet he missed Christ as creator. He knew that this couldn't have been an accident. Yet many scientists, knowing the odds that the right combination of circumstances coming together to make a world like this is impossible or in their minds nigh next to impossible, right? Those same scientists believe that we were birthed out of primordial soup or slime. R. Kent Hughes said, every created speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies of the universe, every atom sub-microscopic solar system with their whimsically named quarks, they're all created by God. A quark is a subatomic particle. I had to look that up, but anyway. Hebrews says that this Christ created, if you look back at your Bibles, created the world. This is, in the original language, the ages The ions, it's an elastic and dynamic term that refers to much more than our physical planet or even our universe. It equals the vast periods of time and everything that transpires in them. Everything that's going on, God has created. And he didn't just create it as a deist would believe where he just wound up the universe and set it all into motion to be governed by the laws of nature where God is now asleep. No, Christ as according to Colossians, you know this, holds all things together. He created and is the sustainer. He is the creator of all things, the life giver of the physical world. And Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow where? In heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth, in angelic realms. God has created everything and Christ is the creator as the agent of creation. Hebrews 11, verse 3, the universe was created by the word of God, that which is seen and unseen. Son existed before the world. That's an important point because he is God and because he existed before the world, we can believe that he is creator. You know, the readers of 
words like these or hearing this preached, perhaps those in Jerusalem, perhaps a second generation group that maybe either heard of Christ or maybe as a child had seen Christ. When they read this and and they're putting together the tie that this Jesus is the one, this physical Jesus who died and was crucified is the same one who created everything, that for a budding believer would be astonishing, wouldn't it? Because they would have been very familiar with the humanity of Jesus Christ who walked the earth physically, the son of Joseph, the carpenter's son, the one who had preached, the one who had spawned a movement, a missionary movement that was moving around the Mediterranean Sea. Readers and hearers that were perhaps in Rome at that time, hearing about the impact of Jesus Christ, something that had happened recently in their lifetime or shortly before their life began in Jerusalem. And they're having to tie together that this one is creator. I think in a lot of ways, we hear the gospel, we we hear it in songs, we hear it in children's songs, we perhaps fall prey to dumbing it down in our own selves. And we hear about it in a storybook form, but we don't honor the Christ who is the center of the gospel as exalted creator. You say, what's wrong with my Christian life? Why am I tempted to compromise? Why am I tempted to give in? Why am I tempted to not speak of Christ? It's because you don't believe he's powerful enough to create, to have created you and that he is literally holding your molecules together as you speak. If you go to the levels of depth and height of this Christ that's portrayed here in Hebrews, you'll become a bold Christian. You'll become someone who becomes less tempted to compromise, to hide, to sink back into the shadows. In the 1800s, there was a scholar, an Anglican scholar and minister, um, also a professor from Cambridge, C.J. Vaughan. He said, the creative action belongs to Jesus. The early church held that the Son had been God's agent in creation, that in some way God had originally created the world through him. They were filled with the thought that the one who had created the world also would be the one who would redeem them and redeem the world. Well, Christ is creator. My second point, and it's kind of oddly written, he is. He creates and he is. That's the writer's point. Jesus is. Another way to put it is how Jesus put it of himself. He said, before Abraham was, I am, right? Jesus called himself, I am the living water. He said of himself, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door. I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And he's reflecting upon what God, who I believe was a a prefigured version of Christ in the burning bush at Exodus 3, what God said to Moses, what Jesus said to Moses, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. The self-existed one in the Hebrew, Yahweh. God has sent you. Jesus is the I am. He is divine. He is supreme and he is eternal. And two attributes are on display here further credentialing him. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Secondly, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of God's 
nature. What does that mean? There's a further unpacking of supremacy here, highlighting the nature of Christ. He is. This is, and I don't want to lose you here with a kind of a philosophical term. When I was a freshman in college, this term kind of just, you know, made my mouth drool. I was just like, oh, whatever. But, you know, it's ontology. It's ontology. It is the is factor of Christ. The writer here is establishing who Christ is as the self-existent one, who is God, before he goes to the gospel. He's making the gospel meaningful by establishing the credibility that this Christ is God, the existence of God. And he's saying it in terms that we can get our minds around. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? Some people term that in one way as the reflection of God the Father, as if Christ is a mirror in heaven. You have God the Father, we can't look upon him directly. God is spirit, so we would have difficulty facing God the Father. And so God the Son is now reflecting the glory of the Father. It's a tenable argument. It's kind of the idea that like in the Alaskan sky, when we get a full moon and we say, wow, that moon is really bright. But we know that the source of that moon Its brightness is the sun. It's the sunlight reflecting upon the moon. And that would be the idea if you took it this way. I think it's a bit insufficient for what's being communicated here. Because again, the author's point is that Christ is the radiator. He's the one who is radiating the message of God as God himself. And so radiance should maybe be termed as the effulgence of something. The extension of glory of someone. Effulgence in the Latin is from the word fulgury, meaning to shine. It's shining forth. It's that there is an outshining from the sun. But don't miss the idea here. The idea here is not that the source of the brightness is the Father. It's that the source of the brightness is the Son. The S-O-N of God, as if he is the S-U-N who is the brightness of the glory of God. You could put it this way, as some do. God the Father is like the sun, and the glory is shining, and then you have rays of sunlight, and those rays are the sun. And you can't have a sun without the rays of the sun. They're both distinct, but they're both shining Christ effulgence in glory. Christ was the source of his own glory. In Mark 9, 3, on the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This is where Peter, James, and John were blown away, right? They're looking at Christ and, and it's as if Christ peeled back his flesh and showed them who he really was in his brightness. Now that brightness is an extension of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but that brightness also is also sourced in Christ himself. And so when it says he's the radiance of the glory of God, it's saying he's God himself radiating the glory of God. Second, he's the exact imprint of his nature. This is the language of twins here, imprinting. It's the language of an engraving tool or a wood etching tool or a branding iron for an animal hide. More specifically, I think that the author is pointing to the imprinting of a, 
a mold that is stamping coins. If you have one stamp, then you can stamp a whole lot of coins as exact replicas. And so, in essence, you have God and you have Christ who is the exact replica of God. Every analogy breaks down, but the author's point is that um, God is Christ because the Son is an exact replica of God. Same in nature. Now, let me say it this way. In church history, there was a big debate between the essence of God the Father and God the Son. And quick church history lesson. It's interesting maybe just to me. But there was a debate between the idea of Christ being homoousius, which means of the exact same substance as the Father. And then there was a false teaching that arrived that was saying, look, you know, to say Jesus is exactly the same substance as the Father isn't exactly right. And so we'll say, we'll get it all the way up to 99% that way, but we'll stop short just a little bit and we'll call it homoousius. And at that point, you're just sticking in one little jot, one little letter, one little Greek Yoda in that term. And the difference between homoousius and homoousius is profound. You either have Christ who is your buddy, Christ, who is your friend, Christ, who just relates to you. And listen, he is our friend and does relate to us on a personal level, but he is the exalted Christ, the eternal I am, who has no beginning. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Before Abraham was, I am, and they wanted to kill him. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's not like God. He's not almost God. He's not 99% God. He's God. And if you don't believe he's God and God in your life, then you won't believe he's worth giving your life to. That's the point. If you don't believe he's worthy as the inheritor, as the one who radiates the glory of God, as God himself, who is the exact representation of God's nature, then he's not worthy in your mind to have saved you. You're vulnerable. You'll not believe that the gospel is enough if you don't have a Christ who's exalted like this. You have things going on in this text where as the exact imprint of his nature is speaking of the imprint of God the Father's nature is the same nature as the Son. You have things that are alike and things that are different. You have distinction and you have identity. You have the three persons of the Trinity that are being described here, at least two of the three here, between the Father and the Son. Same substance but two distinct persons, three in the Godhead of course. You have uh, errors that come out where people will get in your head sometimes and say, you know, well, God exists as one member of the Trinity at a time, and that's modalism. And people, even in evangelical circles today, have come out believing that, and that's wrong-headed. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit make up the Trinity. One God, three persons, always existing, always in community, You have tritheism, which is an error that says all three persons are separate gods, three gods, and you can't say that. These are three persons that make up the Godhead. It's a tension, I know, and it's hard to always try to even grasp. If you um, try to fully comprehend the Trinity, you'll lose your mind, as one person said. 
But if you deny any part of the Trinity or distort it, you'll lose your soul, one person said. So it's interesting. We have to be careful with this doctrine. We don't want to believe that, that there's, there is subordination in the Trinity. Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit is magnifying Christ. That's within the Trinity. But though, the, though there's this subordination within the Godhead, there's a co-equal, co-essence, co-eternal divine um, status for the Trinity. And no one person is inferior to the other within the Trinity. How did I get started on that? John 1, 1 through 3 is very Trinitarian. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. If you want to see the glory of the Father, look to the glory of the Son. Where do I get that? Well, remember Philip in John fourteen nine. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I love the beginning of 1 John. It's one of my favorite beginnings to anything in Scripture. I love it because John is just reflecting as an aged shepherd in his life, some, as a pastor of many churches throughout Asia Minor, something that was super exciting to him, something that he couldn't let go of. It was the, the intimacy that he had with the living human Christ. Now, a lot of people in the church today want to talk about Jesus and his humanity, and we should. We don't want to forget the fact that Jesus was fully human, but we want to speak within the Bible's language about how Christ was fully human and fully God, because you can't have, you can't make a separation in Jesus that way. He's both. It's the hypostatic union. Look at 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Do you see that inner Trinitarian interplay there? Christ was with the Father, meaning from the beginning, but he was manifested to us. He's manifesting the Father to us. He's manifesting himself to us. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Well, Christ creates, Christ is, and Christ rules. Again, this is ontology. This is talking in terms of the is factor of Christ. It says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What does that mean that Christ upholds the universe? It's pontos here. He upholds everything, literally all things. He's upholding everything. What does that mean? Does that mean some things? Does that mean everything but Adam's? Does that mean everything but bad circumstances that he's ruling over? He rules the good things but not the bad? No, there's all kinds of false bifurcations, false dichotomies. You either have a Christ who is sustaining everything at a sub-atomic level, ruling over all the quirks, whatever that word is, Q-U-A-R-K-S, okay. Or you don't have this Christ that is described here in Scripture, He's that ruler, Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, 
He's not the great clockmaker who wound it up as a universe and let it go. This is not a passive vision. This is very active. I love R.C. Sproul's comment here, the late R.C. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. One person put it this way, scientists discovering truths about the laws of nature are really discovering the laws of Christ. He upholds everything. That word uphold is the word pharaoh or pharaoh, it's a present active participle. It's uh, the idea of bearing something. And it was interesting to me because when we did our Mark series, when Jesus was healing by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, he, he, was, he was there and, and he came up on the seashore. I think it was after the storm event where he had said, hush, be still. And he came over and his disciples were there. And suddenly everybody is flooding to him with their sick and infirmed. And they were, same word, they were upholding or pharaoh. They were carrying, they were hoisting on their shoulders those who were sick to Jesus. They were holding and they were doing it with an express purpose. We want you to heal our Family member, our friend, there was no antibiotics. The diseases were rampant in that time, in that culture. There was no cure. Medicine had not reached a stage that we enjoy today in the 21st century. Jesus was the only answer answer, and people were desperate and were carrying their friends. Like the, those four that lowered their friend through the roof. They were bearing their friends. Well, Jesus bears creation in this way. He carries it in a way that's not just sustaining you and sustaining life. He's moving the creation forward to an end, to a goal, toward a final consummation. This world that sin cursed is not something that Christ is just nervously holding together, hoping something works out. Do you understand? This Jesus is the one who created everything, who allowed for sin to be injected into this world, who is still sustaining everything, but the redemption story is what he is carrying out according to his will and his purposes. What does that mean? That means every storm, every circumstance, every life, every death, every ruler, every leader, every decision, every dynamic, though man is humanly responsible, man is never humanly autonomous. It is all under God's control, God in Christ as the superintendent, as the sustainer, as the one who is bearing our life and our age to age all the way to the end in toward, in toward a, into a final consummation for his glory. Express purposes. He said as much in terms of his plan with Israel, Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, using the same language, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who you who have been born by me Before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. That can be personalized to your life. In your birth, in your life, in your gray-haired age, your no-hair age, he he will bear you through all the way to the end. He does this by his word. 
Look at this again in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Dunamis is the word for power. Word is rhema here. It's not logos. We're not talking about the, the spoken word in terms of the word of God that we have as um, scripture. We're talking about a word of power that Christ used while on earth. Let there be light would be a word like that. Um, Lazarus come forth would be a rhema word. Jesus saying to someone who is, you know, sick or infirmed or, or dead, you know, stand up, rise. That's a rhema word of power. Everything is being brought along by the rhema word of Christ. Hebrews 11.3, everything was created by the word of God. There's action here. So everything is sustained and also being brought forward in God's providence by Christ. God's sovereign rule is mediated because he's our king. Do you believe that? Do you believe in a Christ who created you, holds you together, holds your life together, has purposed your life, is God very God in your life and is one for whom we give our lives to, all of our lives to? The early Christians, according to C.J. Vaughn again, they had a tremendous grip on the doctrine of providence. They didn't think of God just creating the world and then leaving it to himself, it to itself. Somehow and somewhere they saw power, a power that was carrying the world and each life on to a destined end. And they sang a hymn like this. Listen to this hymn. That nothing walks with aimless feet, that nothing that not one life shall be destroyed or cast as rubbish to the void when God hath made the pile complete. Christ's governance is moving everything, but it's moving toward an end that the atonement began. God's plan is moving towards an end state that was begun at the cross. The cross redeemed you for a final consummation. And everything is moving in that direction. And that brings us to the final credential. He not only creates, he not only is, he not only sustains everything and holds everything and rules over everything, he finally atones for his children. He made atonement. It's the end of verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus made atonement. The idea of him making purification is a middle voice. Jesus within himself made purification. Understand this. Hebrews wonderfully depicts the fact that Jesus is high priest and sacrifice at the same time. So you're fulfilling Leviticus, you're reading about Leviticus, and you say, well, there had to be a high priest that could bring a worthy sacrifice, and he had to make purification for himself, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies at Yom Kippur and bring this sacrifice, and then the sacrifice was separate, and he tried to get out, you know, without being killed. Jesus entered into the holy place as high priest and sacrifice. And by the way, there is no chair furniture in the tabernacle. So not only did he make purification for sins, it says he sat down. He made a perfect purification for your sins. 
One that did not need to be repeated over and over again, like in the ceremonial law of Leviticus, where the priest would come again and again and again and again. Imagine your own struggles and your own sanctification, your own failings. Again, another ram. Again, another sacrifice. Again, another turtle dove. Again, another offering. More blood needed to be shed. More blood needed to be splattered in that basic meat factory called the tabernacle where things would be sacrificed for our sins as a symbol of repentance looking forward to the Messiah. No, now everything is different. Hebrews chapter 10 says this way, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Purification is such a beautiful word picture. It literally can mean no longer a consciousness of sins. What does that mean? Does that mean that we forget about all of what we've ever done when we become a Christian? No. It means that we have a place to put our guilt over what we have done before Christ or what we've done since Christ because there is an atonement, a purification of our consciences after you're in Christ. Hebrews 10 talks all about it. You can read ahead. But our consciences have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. He has purified our sins and he has covered the guilt of our sins. Isn't that amazing? Do you not possess the superior gift? I mean, the ultimate gift is being saved, right? Our eternity is secure. We have eternal salvation. That's the ultimate gift. But the ultimate byproduct of that gift is having a clean conscience. The world is trying to subdue their conscience. It's trying to anesthetize, you know, their conscience. It's trying to, it's trying to inebriate its conscience. It's trying to forget about its conscience. Things that just don't seem to go away. The cross is the solution to a guilty conscience. That's the purification byproduct that we find in the cross that only Christians enjoy. Jesus was not a victim. He was not passively bearing our sins alone, though he was a victim when he went to the cross. That's not the whole truth. There's a positive side. There's an active side where Christ went to the cross as high priest and sacrifice so that you could stand unstained before God and stand in utter sinless purity. Well, Jesus not only sat down, he sat down in a particular place. Look at that at the end of verse three, at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? Right hand is an anthropomorphism. It's a human-like description of God who is spirit. It's a picture of, of a supreme place of authority, of ruling and reigning. Christ is sovereign. Christ is king. If I made that point this morning, we preach Christ here because he is king. If we don't preach Christ here, we're just playing games. If we preach a dumbed down Christ, we don't have a Christ who's worth giving our life to, our lives to. But we preach this Christ who is exalted, who awaits a final consummation. Jesus 
was spoken to by God the Father, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, Matthew twenty two forty four. The majesty here is the mega lasunes, the majesty. It's the shared honor between the Father and the Son. This is the center point of Hebrews. This is the center point of the New Testament. This should be the center point of our lives. Jesus is the one for whom we've been brought into union with. We've been redeemed by it's beautiful, as, um, again, C.J. Vaughn put it, to Jesus belongs the mediatorial exaltation. He's taking the place at the right hand of the Father in glory. But not as our judge, listen to this, not as our judge, but as one, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, as one who makes intercession for us so that when we enter the presence of God, we go not to hear his justice prosecute us, but his love plead for us. Isn't that beautiful? So don't be afraid of the majesty of Christ. As a Christian, don't be afraid to go this high with Christ or this deep with Christ. Go without fear. There's no condemnation. Perfect love casts out fear. Enter into the, the access of Christ with boldness, Right? But don't dumb Jesus down in the process. Don't dumb him down to get to him. Go with Christ who is at the right hand of the majesty on high.